Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Welcome to House of Horrors. I'm your host, Jonathan B. Lerner, here on the Believe Podcast Network. The number one podcast network for professionals. Do you believe? What's up, everybody? My name is Jonathan B. Lerner with Believe in House of Horrors. And this week, more than ever before, we're going to really live up to our name. The show's name, that is. We're going to do a deep dive into a film, but even more than a film, a famous house of horrors a famous haunted house one of the most famous haunted houses on the face of the earth a house so haunted and so famous that it hasn't just had a movie made about it it's had books written about it and it's had film upon film upon film made about it blockbuster films big documentary films tv shows and so on and so forth It's interesting, in uh, the episode focused on The Exorcist, I talk about how oftentimes when you see a book or film that says it is based on a true story, they use that term based on very loosely, and oftentimes it's very kind of almost made up. But typically, when it's based on a true story, regardless of how many artistic liberties they take, there's not too much you can add in terms of sequels and prequels and remakes, I guess. I mean, I guess you could do a remake, and God knows they have. But in this particular instance, with this particular house, they have, in fact, made many sequels, many prequels, and we're not going to talk about any of them. No. Uh, You see, tonight, folks... Instead of just zeroing in on one of the many films made about this house, I thought we would go and take take a deep dive look into the house itself, the history, what happened there. Why is it even considered haunted in the first place, and is it, frankly, a bunch of garbage? I don't know, folks. You tell me, and you'll be able to tell me after we do this deep dive look. But before we get into it, if you enjoy this show, please remember to subscribe and rate us on iTunes. Oh, Apple Podcasts, or whatever it's called. We're also available on Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, Luminary, TuneIn, basically wherever podcasts are found. If you can find podcasts there, you can find us there. Follow us on Twitter. We're at Believe, that's capital B-L-E-A-V, podcasts. And of course, feel free to follow me. I'm at J-O-N-B as in boy, L-E-R-N-E-R. That's J-O-N, no H. B as in boy, L-E-R-N-E-R. That's my handle on Twitter, Instagram, all that fun stuff. All right. I think that's all I've got as far as housekeeping goes. So let's get into it. My friends, it's time to talk about the Amityville Horror. This is the most notorious haunted house in the world. It is to be found in the sleepy seaside town of Amityville, an hour away from the hustle and bustle of New York City. A truly horrifying crime was committed here when six members of the DeFeo family were shot dead in a single night. Even now, the details of exactly how these brutal murders were carried out remain shrouded in mystery. 
One year later, the Lutz family moved in. They fled from the house, having lived there for only 28 days, claiming that they had been driven out by terrifying and unexplained supernatural forces. Their story was the subject of a media frenzy, turned them into celebrities, and became a worldwide bestseller, the Amityville Horror. It would spawn numerous books and films. Mediums and psychic investigators have claimed there is a curse on the property. Others say that the Lutz's story is no more than a clever money-making scheme built on the gruesome history of the house. It's probably one of the most haunted homes in the world. It's certainly one of the most publicized haunted homes in the world. Whatever happened, it was a confluence of events and personalities, and it meshed to form the perfect psychic storm. It's just this web of lies, and the motivation was simple enough. They produced a beautiful commercial scam. Their version is not a true story, but if they call it a true story, you know, how can you say that they're liars? Oh, I can say that they're liars. All right. The Amityville Horror. You've pro- if you're an American, you've probably heard of it. If you like horror movies, ghost stories, books, you've probably heard of it. Now, it's funny. I told a story on this show one month ago because it was actually one month ago today that I on my way back from my cousin's wedding, finally did something I've wanted to do for so long. I actually took that exit. I had a rental car because I had to take a rental car to get to my cousin's wedding. And so when you have a rental car, when you have a car in New York City, you better make the most of it. Am I right or am I right? So I did do something I've wanted to do for a long, long time. And that is when I see that sign on the highway that says Amityville, Well, I took the exit. I went to Amityville. I typed into my GPS 108 Ocean Avenue, which is a different address. Just so everyone is clear, in the movie and originally, the house where all of these horrors, horrors took place. The address is 112 Ocean Avenue. That address has been changed to 108 Ocean Avenue. So, so smart. No one will ever figure that one out. I mean, hello, hello. You can still type in 112 Ocean Avenue and it'll probably take you to the same house. But regardless, the address nowadays is 108 Ocean Avenue. Well, I did it. I typed it into my GPS and it took me there. Now, as I said, I think when I told this story originally, there are a lot of places I've gone in my life that have been on my, so I guess you could say bucket list of things to see and trips to take. Things like, The Texas School Book Depository in Dallas, Texas, where JFK was assassinated. The Lorraine Motel in Memphis, Tennessee, where Martin Luther King was assassinated. You know, places like these. And every time I go somewhere like that, somewhere I've really wanted to see for a long time and have done some research about, well, as I approach the location, I start to recognize things. Things become familiar to me and I start to feel, oh my gosh, I'm getting close. I can feel it. I'm getting closer. And this was no different. And then when you come upon the grounds and you turn to your left because I was driving and it was on my left and I turned and there it was. The Amityville Horror House. Unmistakable. Unmistakable. There it was. Just like you see it in every picture, I was there. I You know, Amityville is a small, quaint, quiet little town. They barely even had sidewalks. 
So, and it's right on some body of water. I can't even tell you what the water is right now, but it's on a body of water. And it's very cute. It's on Long Island. It's a very chic little town. In fact, it's beautiful. It's very picturesque. Uh, by the time I was coming back from my cousin's wedding, this would have been around midnight at least. And most people were asleep in the quiet town of Amityville, New York. Well, so I pulled down a side street, parked the car, got out and walked up to the house. You can't get too close. And I didn't want to get too close. I didn't want to be one of those annoying people who like bother, you know, the people who probably live there now. And it's funny. There's a sign there that says this is private property. Like if you trespass, you will be prosecuted. How many houses have signs like that? If you ever needed an indication that you've found the correct house, there it is. But I have to tell you, it was, it's a beautiful little house. It's a chic little town. At one point, because I was, I was bound and determined, I had come that far, I had waited so long, I was going to get the, the photographs I wanted to take. You know, one from the side with those eye windows looking out at you, those evil eyes. That have since been changed. They're no longer those quarter circle windows that look like evil eyes. They're now just little squares with windowsills, shutters. Um, but it was the house, unmistakable. And there was a point where like a car, this big loud truck would come <laughs> down the street. It kept and it kept like going around the block. And so I thought to myself, this must be like a neighbor. They must have like a neighborhood watch type thing because people are always coming to look at the house. It made me very uncomfortable. So at one point I did take a little walk around the block. And as I was coming back along the street, down the correct street, I swear to God, not making this up, a black cat. From way up ahead, I see a black cat slowly cross the street, stop and turn and look right at me. Right at me with his glowing eyes. And he just stared at me. And I was probably a hundred yards away. But I saw it. Oh, not that far. A hundred feet away. And I saw the cat. We made eye contact. He just stood there and looked at me like a little statue. And after maybe 30 seconds, 30 full seconds, he finally just kept on walking across the street. But I was crossed by a black cat. So that was scary. So I go back to the house where the house is and I see close to where my car is parked. There's that truck sitting there. And as I walk up, because I'm, I'm thinking, I, I finally said to myself, you know what? I'm not going to be intimidated. If that's some neighborhood watch guy, they can come up and I was dressed for a wedding. I looked damn great. So if they were going to come up and ask like, what are you doing here? Who are you? I'd say I work for the government and I'm here to help. As I was walking up towards the house again, the car like sped off. And I thought, oh God, I better get out of here. And so I did. I took my pictures. I took it all in and I ran back to the car and I sped out. I actually almost got lost in Emeryville. Great. But that's not the point. It occurred to me as I was driving back that that truck was probably someone doing exactly what I was doing. And his reaction to me was probably my reaction to him. He would, they were probably there to see the house. And they probably saw me as someone who was probably keeping a lookout. So it was all just a misunderstanding. But anywho, I have seen the Amityville house live and in person. I've stood there alone at midnight in the driveway, looking up into the windows. And I have to tell you, folks, 
nothing about it felt haunted. And now I had, I obviously, I didn't go in the house. I didn't like get to do any research or paranormal. I didn't take on my like meter of any uh, white noise and hello, help me, all that stuff. I didn't have that with me. I was at a wedding, but just from the looks of it, it looked like a quaint, cute, normal little house. The only thing, but then you do have to remember the, the terrible, terrible tragedy that took place there. The DeFeos lived there and there were six brutal murders. The DeFeos lived in this house. There was two parents and I believe five children, three boys, two girls. And one day they had all been brutally shot dead, except for the oldest son named Ronnie, Ronald. And so immediately at first he was taken into protective custody because they thought, well, you know, who? maybe this was like a mafia hit job. They were an Italian family. Who knows? But the townsfolks, oh, no, they knew who killed the DeFeos. The Amateurville locals had already made their minds up about who had slaughtered the family. I walked around the neighborhood and, and I said, can you tell me anything more about what happened? And almost to the person, every kid said, Ronnie did it. Ronnie did it. I was in my car. I believe the reporter was Joe Martin. Came on and said that the killings had happened. And they didn't say that Ronnie was dead with them. And I, I said to my wife, it, uh, <laughs> it was Ronnie. Ronnie was, I'll uh, put it this way, a wild teenager. He had a reputation for using drugs, for violence, for fighting with his father. He was a punk. All he did was drink, gamble, and fight. If you knew him, and you knew the situation, I guess, or you ever spent any time around him, it was not something that he was incapable of doing. And when everybody else is dead and he's not, you know. Ronnie DeFeo, I've seen a lot of interviews with him, and he, his story has changed so dramatically so many times. It, it's pretty crazy, because he... um. I just saw a recent interview with him and he looks horrible. He looks like he's on the, you know, death's door, but he's going back to this whole possession thing. See, when he was younger and giving interviews about this, he initially basically admitted, he was like, yeah, we, I mean, here's, here's a little bit of him. Let's see if you can, if you can get a sense at all of the type of person he might be. This is Ronnie DeFeo, the murderer. I guess the Abbeville horror really is supposed to be me because I'm the one that the, uh, got convicted of killing my family. I'm the one who said did it. I'm the one that's supposed to be possessed by the devil. There was a lot, a lot of problems, you know. And it's not that I could sit here and lie to you. I could say that I knew something bad was going to happen to my mother and father. After what happened, it was like a nightmare. I'm looking at my mother and father dead, my sister. I said, my God, I got scared. I ran out of the house, jumped in my car, Ran down the street and got my friends and came back to the house. We were really a close family, you know. It's a shame what happened, but it happened. Was that okay, so even that, what you just heard, when he talks about, you know, I was scared. You know, I ran in the car and I got my friends. We came back to the house. Huh. Well, see, that alone totally is not what he says in this most recent interview that I saw of him. And when I say recent, I mean, it was probably within the past two years. And he says, he comes up with this whole story about he and his sister killed his parents. 
but he wasn't even planning to kill his mom. He was just going to kill his dad. And then he said, don't do nothing. You stay here. Don't talk to nobody. This is how he talks. He's kind of lost his mind. And yeah, don't talk to nobody. Then I went, I got in my car. I went to Brooklyn. I didn't have a watch on, but I listened to music and I heard the radio and he said it was 302. I'll never forget that. He comes up with this whole story about him driving to Brooklyn and coming back and finding his whole family murdered. He said he only murdered his parents and then they came back and his whole family was murdered. It's all very bizarre, but the only thing I took from it is that he's truly cuckoo, cuckoo. You can't listen to anything this guy says. He's, 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 I don't know if it's truly mental illness, if he's just a pathological liar. I don't know, but he is a cuckoo, cuckoo. <laughs> like everything he says is nuts and it's so contradictory. I actually read the transcript of one of his parole hearings and it's even more insane than anything I've ever read or ever heard him say on, um, in an interview. But regardless, he's nuts. So everyone knew that he was probably done it. And frankly, he even kind of, he even eventually came to admit it in a, in a roundabout way. Before we get to all that, though, I do want to play, there's a, just a few examples of what he sounds like then, what he sounds like now and what he sounded like back in the day and how his stories have changed a bit. This is Ronnie DeFeo, the murderer. He sounds just like I said, right? He's going to go to Brooklyn. I had to take the money and go to Brooklyn. I told her, look, don't do nothing. Don't talk to nobody. Don't do nothing. I'll be back. I didn't wear a watch, but I always listen to the radio in the car. Always have music on. And I'm going to tell you right now, when I got to Brooklyn, the man said it was 302. I'll never forget that on the radio. I left the house. I was just driving around. Really. It was late. Nobody was up sleeping. I just kept driving and thinking. I was in a fog. I really didn't know what to do. You know, I was really messed up. The more I thought about it, the worse it got. I was driving with the window open. The radio was off. The radio was off. The radio was off. Okay, so there he's driving with the radio off. You just heard him say he was always listening to the radio. It was 302. And in the thing you heard me, in the thing you heard me play just a few minutes ago, that's part of my little presentation here tonight. He said, It was like a nightmare. I'm looking at my mother and father dead, and my sister. I said, My God. I got scared. I ran out of the house, jumped in my car, ran down the street, got my friends, and came back to the house. So there you have three different versions of a story being told by one guy, Ronnie DeFeo. Now, here's another contradiction because he truly is just a walking one of them. The problem was Ronald DeFeo Sr., my father. He's the cause of all of this. The only way to get rid of him, he's got to go back to hell. My father was my best friend in uh, many, many ways. No matter what I did, and uh, the truth of the matter is most of the time I was always wrong. I was always in trouble. No matter what I did, he was always there for me to bail me out. Okay. My father, he was the cause of all of this. He had to go back to hell. Well, then you hear him as a younger man saying he was my best friend. He was always there for me. He always bailed me out. Okay, so what are we to believe? We can't believe anything this guy says. And yet, it's really his his story that's kind of been the basis of all of these subsequent accounts and whatnot. 
And here's a biggie. Here's a doozy. Here's another contradiction coming to you from, you know who, Ronnie DeFeo, the murderer. There was nothing but bad in that house. I was going to burn it to the ground. That's the truth. I was going to burn it to the ground. I just pray to God it don't happen to nobody else. That's why I told you. Anybody buys that house and got kids and move in there? Come on, man. You got to be, you really got to be. Something wrong with you. I lived in that house all those years. I've never saw anything really peculiar or strange. Never once. Huh? Okay. Same guy, totally different stories, okay? So he says, you gotta be crazy to live in that house. Come on, man. That's the old Ronnie. There's the young, saner Ronnie. I lived in the, that house for a long time. I've never saw anything really peculiar or strange. Never once. So he's a, so clearly he's a liar. And again, I'll say one last time, he's also... And now everyone in, in Amityville knew that he was the one who did it. So how did he do it? That's that was the first question. The standard story is basically that Ronald DeFeo Jr., who was then 23 in 1974, woke up at approximately 3:15 a.m. and, for reasons unknown, basically killed his entire family while they slept. He took the rifle and shot both of his parents who were sleeping in the master bedroom. Then he shot his younger brothers, two of them. then he went to an adjacent bedroom and shot his sister. And then he walked up to the third floor bedroom and shot his other sister, Dawn. Now, that voice you just heard right there, that was the voice of uh, Mr. Weber. He was Ronald DeFeo's defense attorney. So he just explained to you that his client, Ronald DeFeo, killed all of these people. Now, there's a lot of unanswered questions. Some relate to his sister Dawn and how she had some um, unburnt gunpowder on her, which could mean that she fired a rifle that night. But the biggest one that always has stuck out to me, and this, and I thought about this as I was standing outside the house by myself at midnight one month ago today. I was standing in the driveway looking up at the house, and as I said, this is a quaint, cute, chic little uh, provincial town, Amityville, and all the houses are very close together. Gunshots are loud. There's no way that, like, I mean, if I had started yelling in the street, five houses at least could have heard me, probably more. The houses are very close together. How in the world did he murder a bunch of people in the middle of the night using a loud, loud shotgun and no one in the house even appeared to wake up. That, that I still, that's, that's the one question that's still very odd to me. And apparently I'm not the only one. Oh no, I'm not. They were each shot with a 35 Marlin. We had an experiment conducted when we were preparing for trial, the noise level of the 35 Marlin. And that Marlin could be heard close to four to five blocks away from the house. Nobody heard a thing. I did find, however, one of the neighbors who heard at about between 3 and 3.30 in the morning the family's dog barking. It was crying or baying. With all the shots that took place, there were approximately nine. 
nine blasts from a Marlin. There was no evidence that any of the six victims had made any attempt to escape. What was so odd is how you managed to shoot six people in the middle of the night in a quiet neighborhood without awakening any of the people. A shotgun blast is pretty loud. That doesn't make any sense. One might argue maybe they were being held by another gunman and told not to move until Ronnie came around and did what he did. I thought perhaps the bodies had been moved from their original spots. The autopsy reports show that no, they were not moved, that they were in the original places that they were when they were shot. There were no drugs found in the bloodstreams. And again, the victims are found lying face down in death with the arms outstretched as if placed there. There seems to be something almost systematic and very methodical about it that would seem to involve the in, in more than just one person. The curious anomalies of the crime scene would provide some eerie clues as to who or what had been responsible for the killings in Amityville. Holy sweet mother of God. Okay, so that is a question that has bothered me. I still, I mean, how in the, that was a, a loud, loud gun. As you heard, the attorney said you could hear it from five blocks away. How did no one wake up? I'm thinking about my house growing up. It's a big house. It's a really big house. There's like four stories. My mother, I mean, like if I had shot a gun or better yet, more likely in my case, if I had broken a plate or something, she would hear it and come running down. I mean, like how in the world could this, how in the world could this have taken place? I don't know. And I don't think we'll ever know. I don't think we'll ever know the answer to that question. All right, so he's been taken into custody. He's on trial, and here's where it all starts. Here's where the Amityville horror is really kind of birthed. The other thing about uh, Ronald DeFeo, of course, was he immediately started ranting and raving from prison that the devil made him do it. Some priest was in the courtroom watching my performance on the witness stand. He felt that my performance, I had to be uh, possessed by the devil. Okay, so let's take that for what it was. He just admitted that it was a performance. I saw a priest. I put on this performance. I started saying that the devil made me do it. He believed it. He said I had to be possessed by the devil. He basically admits to just telling a stupid story. Now, that was the young, obviously more, you know, sane Ronald DeFeo making that admission. But it was an admission. And I think we should take it at that face value it's a he's admitted to just making this all up and we have to remember that but enter the lutz family the defeo home at 112 ocean avenue was put up for sale at a knockdown now it's 108 ocean avenue remember that price it was put on sale for a knockdown price because of its ghastly history it was then that george and kathleen lutz newlyweds with a young family went to view the house and the next extraordinary chapter of the Amityville Horror began. This house had no reservations for us. It was the answer to so many different things that we thought would be perfection of a sort. That is the voice of George Lutz. 
we discussed the events that had happened in the house as a family and came to the decision that we would all be okay with the history of what had happened. But I don't think any of us considered the possibility that there would be something residual there. According to the Lutzes, there were unsettling occurrences from the very beginning. Harry tried to hang himself, our dog, our black Labrador retriever. He jumped over the fence and his chain was too short and he was actually hanging on the wrong side of the fence, choking to death. And that was all within the first hour of moving in. George Lutz then says that a good friend who knew the history of the house strongly advised him to have it blessed. The priest came and went about the house blessing and came out and told Kathy and I not to use the one upstairs bedroom we were going to use as a sewing room as a bedroom. He said he felt something in there. And he was slapped. He heard a voice tell him to get out. Those were two things that were immediate first day, first few hours. Within the first few days, George Lutz claims he found himself waking regularly at 3.15 in the morning, feeling restless, uneasy, and often hearing strange noises. Significantly, this was the time when the DeFeo murders were estimated to have taken place. I got very sick in the house and lost a lot of weight, lost days of work. Um, my own personal hygiene changed there. He was undergoing personality changes. He would snap at the family. He and Kathy were having arguments. He could not get warm. He was constantly outside chopping wood, building fires. Kathy would go to different rooms in the house and feel different things. She was embraced by what she felt was someone, a woman. When she told me about it, she was quite frightened and quite disturbed by it. The Lutzes reported swarms of houseflies infesting certain rooms, highly unusual in midwinter. They were also becoming increasingly anxious about the behavior of their daughter, Missy. Missy started to explain to Kathy that she had a friend, the friend's name was Jody, that it represented itself to her as a large pig. When Jody told her that he was glad she was there and she was going to be living there forever, that was quite disturbing. As the days went past, the Lutzes claimed that more and more strange things were happening around them. When you hear screams at night and you hear footsteps at night and the kids are saying strange things and the temperatures in the house vary and the spots that would appear in the carpet in the morning, um, the progression of certain toilets turning black the China actually turning black. When you sit down and you start talking about those, then there's obviously something wrong. They still don't like to talk about what happened that very last night that finally drove them from the house. I will never be able to set aside what had gone on that night, all night, and the boys where they looked and what they said when they came down that morning. Come on, baby, come on, come on, get up. The Lutz family say they finally fled from the house in the early morning of January 14th, 1976. They would never return. We did not move in and move out as the same family. All of us were quite frightened by the time we left and knew of no fear when we moved in. And the fear alone was something that 
probably changed all of us. Oh, God, yes, it did change all of us. That was George Lutz. You heard George Lutz speak a lot about his experience. Sounds pretty grotesque. Sounds pretty horrifying, doesn't it? Yes, it does. But can we believe their story? I mean, there's, you know, that's a that's quite a tale to tell. And here's what's always stuck with me. Here's what's always made me think, made me question the Lutzes, is since they scampered out and ran for their lives back in the 70s, there have been many different families who have lived in that house, and none of them have ever complained of anything like this. Isn't that a little weird? That's a little weird. Well, anywho, after the Lutz family scampered for their lives and ran away in fear from the house, well, they took measures, or George Lutz took measures to have the house investigated. He called a man who he thought was a parapsychologist, but he turned out to be a vampirologist. No need for a vampirologist. No vampires inside here. Thanks, but no thanks. So then... He does, he calls someone though, and he kind of arranges to have him go look at the property. But apparently, he told like the neighborhood newsletter that he was, in fact, going to go look at this property. And so George called him one day and was like, Well, son of a bitch, like, I didn't want any publicity. Now we can't do the investigation. I'm going to have to wait at least a few weeks because I didn't want any publicity. Now, that seems like a noble claim, right? You know, I didn't want any publicity. So maybe that would make the story a little more believable. However, the same day that he told this parapsychologist that he didn't want any publicity and they were going to have to delay their investigation, he was giving a press conference with, get this, a lawyer, a very specific lawyer. Who was the lawyer? Oh, guess who that defense attorney was. So in the morning, he's giving a press conference, and in the evening, he's telling us he's canceling our investigation because he doesn't want the publicity. In an extraordinary twist, this press conference was organized by none other than William Weber, Ronald DeFeo's defense attorney. Weber was now representing DeFeo in the appeal against his earlier conviction. Seemingly, he and the Lutzes had made contact in the immediate aftermath of their leaving the house. Weber called a press conference with Newsday. Um, and told us that Newsday demanded that we be there. Again, a bell went off with my husband. Why is William Weber, the defense attorney for the mass murderer, Ronald DeFeo, now representing this gentleman, Lutz, who had moved into the house afterwards, and what's the connection there? I was approached by a Paul Hoffman, who at the time was a freelance writer for the news, and indicated that the Lutzes would like to meet with me and I said, you know, I too would like to meet with them because coincidentally I had been given an oral commitment that uh, we would get a large advance uh, for a book and a, and a movie. Now, wait a minute. Uh, holy shit. He's already talking about a large advance for a book and a movie before he's ever even met the Lutzes. He's trying to make money off of the murders, the DeFeo murders. Son of a bitch. Slimy. Weber never, in those first meetings, ever brought up the idea of that. He was very keen on helping his client get psychological help. At least that's what we were led to believe. We felt that what happened to us was an indication of what quite possibly could have also affected him. At one particular meeting, 
Weber claims he revealed some key details of the DeFeo crime, details that were to be of vital significance in the Lutz's subsequent story. We were there from about 9 or 10 in the evening to 3 in the morning, drinking wine. And I can't tell you how many bottles of wine we had, but it was many. I had photographs of the crime scene, and based upon the photographs and other facts that I had related, we developed what ultimately turned out to be part of the Lutz's version of the possession aspect of the case. The Lutzes let me listen to a tape recording that they had made with William Weber. And in fact, George Lutz, before playing the tape, prefaced his remarks to me and said, I'm not particularly proud of this. For instance, I showed the pictures of the blackish, greenish uh, fingerprint powder that was all over the house, put there by the police who were looking for fingerprints. And uh, they said, wow, look, there's the slime coming from the doors. We had pictures of Dawn's third floor bedroom that had dead flies all over it. Well, they took Dawn's room and they had flies flying around all the time. They supplemented the facts that I was telling them about the case, and it all appeared in their book. I think when they sobered up or the cold light of day, they felt, uh, maybe this didn't feel right to them. But in this tape, William Weber already had, uh, he, was, he was purporting to say, hey, we can get movies, books, film rights. He was already talking about percentages and cutting deals. Okay, I have to cut in here and just point something out. You've just heard three voices. You heard the voice of William Weber, the lawyer who wants to cut all these deals. The voice of George Lutz, who is talking about how he never mentioned any of this in our initial meeting. And then the voice of the woman who was a reporter, and she's just telling you what she knows, okay? William Weber, while he might be slimy and into nothing in this for no reason other than money and movies and advances... He's told us that. He told us that right from the get-go. He's not shying away from that at all. Uh, the woman who's the reporter, she just said that she heard on this recording, on this tape recording of their initial meeting, she heard that he was talking books and movies and percentages and cutting deals. George Lutz, a few minutes ago, you may have heard him, he said, well, he never mentioned that at our initial meeting, made no mention of it at all. We would never do it. So, what have we established right here? George Lutz, maybe he doesn't have the best credibility. Maybe he doesn't have any credibility. Perhaps he's lying. Who knows? I don't know. Do you know? <gasps> I don't know. But we're going to find out. Keep going. He was in the process of putting together some kind of book and movie contract with DeFeo, and he sent a contract to our house that included paying DeFeo some 5% of whatever the proceeds were. So Weber was involved in actually trying to pay DeFeo for the murders. At that point, we broke off all contact with William Weber. They just disappeared off the face of Long Island after that. Okay, now... So I understand that if he was, look, if, if George Lutz really felt like he was trying to pay to fail for the murder, so oh God, well, I wouldn't blame him for that. That is bad and wrong and creepy. And I would probably run. I'd probably say, no, thanks. We're out of here as well. However, he initially said that 
they didn't talk about book deals or any of that stuff at their initial meeting. Well, I think that's a lie. I think that is incorrect. I think that's a lie. And we need to remember that George Lutz is not necessarily the most trustworthy figure in this saga of the Amityville horror. Oh, by the way, if you enjoy this show, please remember to subscribe and rate us on iTunes. Oh, oh, Apple Podcasts or whatever it's called. We're also available on Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, Luminary, TuneIn, basically wherever podcasts are found. If you can find podcasts there, you can find us there. Follow us on Twitter. We're at B-Leave, that's capital B-L-E-A-V, podcasts. And of course, feel free to follow me. I'm at J-O-N-B as in boy, L-E-R-N-E-R, that's J-O-N, no H. B as in boy, L-E-R-N-E-R. That's my handle on Twitter, Instagram, all that fun stuff. All right. Now back to the Amityville Horror. So we've established that William Weber was in for it. He wanted money and he was giving them a lot of ideas. By ideas, I mean he was relaying a lot of the investigatory facts that they were then kind of taking and using as ideas to include in their book, in their haunted story. Okay, so once they stopped talking to Weber, then what happened? Then what happened, huh? When the Lutz family claimed that their home in Amityville was possessed, a local TV station assembled a team of psychics and arranged to film their investigation of the house. They got parapsychologists, they brought in some other psychics, and it was arranged to go in there on the night of March 6th, 1976. Soon after the Channel 5 news team and their reporter Marvin Scott arrived at the house, people began behaving unusually. Nothing happened to me, but things were happening to people around me. The way people were affected was just crazy. First thing that happened, our cameraman, Steve, got to the landing on the second floor and all of a sudden he bent over clutching his chest he had stabbing chest pains the overwhelming impression was very sad i had the impression of a teenager who had done something that had changed his life entirely and he had committed something horrendous When we went up to the second floor, of course, the psychics could feel the remnants or the bad vibes. Six people had been murdered violently there, you know, not two years before. There was a window above me, and I saw a face of a young girl looking out at me. Then I heard crying, weeping. So I said, look to the white light, walk towards it, and everybody you love is waiting for you. Lorraine, during the seance, said that she felt like there was some evil here that was from the bowels of the earth. It was not just the murdered spirits of the dead DeFeos. I could see bodies all lined up, all with white sheets over them. I got the impression of, like, hooded figures like monks right outside the door, closing the door well, looking in at me. I thought, "Uh uh-oh. I get to the top and I go into a room and Marvin Scott said to me, what is it? What is it? I said to him, I hope this is as close to hell as I'll ever get. Sweet Jesus, help us all. You know what? Let's talk for just a second about these psychics. 
these this group of psychics who has gone there and suddenly everyone starts behaving strangely. I couldn't tell you why. I mean, they're not, you know, a little eccentric to begin with. They're all psychics. Listen, when you get back from Mars, call us, okay? It's not that I hate psychics. It's not that I'm just a ardent non-believer. That's not the case at all. I would love to believe in psychics. I just haven't had any good experiences or any, you know, convincing experiences with them. And this description that they're giving where, you know, I saw a little girl and she was looking out at me. And so I said, go to the light. Problem solved. It's like, it's like, wait a minute, huh? And then she's like, I felt, oh, I felt so many evil spirits. And then this is as close to hell as I ever want to get. And later on in this documentary that I'm playing clips from, they talk about an Indian chief and he was there and he was so angry because they took his land. And she was a trans medium. So she was like, the woman I'm imitating right now, she was a trans medium. So they say she sat there and the Indian chief overtook her body and used her vocal cords. And she was like, how? Oh. <laughs> no, just She didn't say how. She didn't say how, but she, there is a recording of her. And, and it's funny because the reporter's like her, her voice dropped several octaves, octaves, her voice dropped several octaves and she developed an Adam's apple and blah, blah, blah. But when I hear the recording, she sounds like an old woman. Sorry, she does. But she's saying, well, my neck is cracked and my skull is stretched and I'm an Indian chief and this was sacred place. And when am I getting paid? So there's so many different, you know, psychic this and paranormal that and like people all having these experiences and stuff. And again, the reporter said very clearly, nothing happened to me. I didn't feel anything. I didn't see anything. But people around me were having all kinds of crazy experiences. And so, you know, take that for what you will. The one thing they did get um, from this night of investigations was they had a camera, a stationary camera set up on a tripod on the second floor, kind of looking out over the staircase and into these two vacant rooms. And it was the way it was set up. It was just like every, every, I think, minute or so, it would just snap a picture, snap a photo. And so they ended up with like 400 photos of just this little random space in the house. Nothing. But as the secretary was like looking through all of them, just kind of throwing them all away, there was one, and you can look it up, you'll find it. There's a very specific photo. It's in black and white. Among all of those photos of just that vacant area of the house, where in this one photo, there is a the clear depiction, the clear kind of manifestation of a little boy peering out of one of the dark rooms. He's peering out and looking out. Hello. And it's it's very unsettling. It's very scary. And in this documentary, when uh, George Lutz was asked about it, he said, yes, I did see that photo. And I asked our little daughter, Missy, who this was. And she said, oh, that's the little boy who plays with me. That was the first we'd heard of it. Oh, God. So anyway, that is what he said. So after all of these investigations and psychic experiences and they bring in paranormal investigators Hans Holzer and all that stuff well eventually that book does get written the Amityville Horror the original book was written by Jay Anson 
And it was a it was a frenzy. It caused a frenzy. It was not just a national bestseller. It caused a frenzy. And it was flying off the shelves and tourists converged on the little town of Amityville like a son of a bitch, like a son of a bitch. And it was crazy. And I feel bad for the people because I was one of them. Hello. I told you a month ago, I went to this house and I stood there and I looked at it from the driveway. I'm not a local. They don't know me, but I was there and I just thought, I actually thought about this as I was standing there. I was like, I can't imagine like tons of tourists, cars, like piling up here. It's how would it even work? And how would the neighbors feel about it? Oh, they didn't like it. When they sold those books and the motion picture came out, all hell broke loose. It was a media frenzy. I mean, people just descended on the village of Amityville. People from Ireland, people from England, people from all over Europe. They were plagued, not by ghosts inside or demons, but by tourists. In the rainstorms and thunderstorms, as many as 50 people standing there with their hands together, uh, just looking at the house like it was a religion. On Ocean Avenue, people's lawns were just crushed with people parking their cars and trying to get to the horror house. I had busloads. People in my backyard picnicking, nuns from Sweden. They got stuck on my driveway. I don't know how they even got down my driveway. People running up and wanting to grab a piece of the house, pulling up a piece of the lawn, taking off a piece of the siding of the house. One woman hit a cop over the head so hard with a pocketbook, she almost knocked him out. Anything so that they could go and peer into the windows and really be annoying. I just went on and on and on. But just as thousands of tourists seemed convinced by the amateurable story, so there were growing numbers who suspected a hoax. Yes, that's correct. You see, as William Weber, the lawyer for Ronald DeFeo, he suspected he suspected that they were making up a story to sell right from the get-go because he was hearing them take investigatory facts that he was giving them and he was hearing them elaborate on them. But... Even more so than that, when the Jay Anson novel came out, even the things that they had told him were now, you know, exaggerated to become even more flagrant and dramatic for the book. So when you see the book that says The Amityville Horror, A True Story, well, I've talked about this plenty of times. Is it ever really a true story? Well, a lot of people really doubted this Amityville story right from the get-go. Jay Anson writes this thick tome, The Amityville Horror True Story. And I thought, something here smells bad. The original articles that came out, they said that they did not see any human forms and that they just had strange noises, uh, bumps, banging in the pipes, things like this. They were experiencing what on the surface appeared to be some low-level psychic phenomenon. No levitation, no windows being shattered, no doors wrenched off their hinges by unseen forces. By the time they got to the book, they had green slime and red slime and marching bands and Jody the Demon Pig. We had 116 obvious errors, physical errors, in the book. And that's before you get down to floating pigs. There was a picture that Missy had drawn, one of the Lush children, of Jody, the demonic pig that she said would often appear up on the second floor windowsill with its red eyes peering in. We started talking to some of the neighbors, and one of the neighbors said to us, 
oh, what, what does it look like? And we showed the picture that was in the book, and they said, oh, that's the cat that Ronald DeFeo called the pig because he was fat. Well, the pig happened to be my, my wife had a Persian cat. And I, it was a Persian cat, I'm sure. This cat would actually jump up into the window and stand there and stare with those red glowing eyes. And what about those infamous flies? My God, the murder took place. The victims were removed after 48 hours. The house was then sealed up and the heat was on. Just doesn't take a brain scientist to figure out how you end up with flies. As part of their investigation, Jordan and Moran interviewed Jim and Barbara Cromarty, who bought the house after the Lutzes left. We asked them if when they moved into the house they had made any major repairs. Because if you read the book, it, you get the impression that this whirlwind of paranormal activity sweeps through the house and leaves it in a state of shambles. No, they tell us. Everything was in perfect shape when they walked through it and they made their purchase. My husband did a program in which he debated George Lutz, and George Lutz tried to say that the window in the house had slammed down on his son's hand, and he had taken him to Brunswick Hospital to be treated. So my husband said, well, we'll just subpoena the records of Brunswick Hospital, and then you can prove that. And he said, well, I didn't really take him to the hospital. We bandaged it at home. So the story would change if you tried to pin him down. And that's actually what leads me to my final argument here. My final thought, if you will. That story she just told about the Lutz boy having his hand smashed by the window. Well, we've heard a lot about some of the Lutz children. Missy saw the flying pig and the little girl Jody and the little boy who, who showed up in that photograph. Well, that was her friend, apparently. And now one of his sons got his hand crushed. Well, where are all the Lutz children? They must still be alive, right? Uh, George recently died, and his wife, um, Kathy Lutz, died a few years before him. But what about all the children? Well, the children, that son who had his hands smashed, well, he's finally started to talk. And he's, I don't want to say he's crazy, but he's a little disturbed himself. There's another documentary that's recently been released. I believe it's called My Amityville Horror, and Daniel Lutz is the subject. And he tells a tale he tells the tale of George Lutz and how George Lutz, okay, here's all I'm going to say about this because I don't want to be, I don't want to defame the dead and I don't want to, I don't know these people, but according to one of his stepsons, by the way, a stepson, not a real son, according to Daniel Lutz, George Lutz was pretty abusive way before they ever moved to that house. So you hear early on, that George Lutz, he was having personality changes. He was coming abusive and would snap at the family. Well, that would happen before they ever came into contact with the Amityville house or the Amityville community. And not only that, but it was revealed in this documentary called My Amityville Horror that George Lutz was actually kind of interested in the occult. He was fascinated by ghosts and demons and Satan and witchcraft and wizardry and stuff like that and so some people wonder whether or not he's lying or whether or not they went in to make money and come up with this elaborate hoax that's one thing but another thing to consider is maybe you know how they say you know if you're more open to these experiences well they're probably going to happen i don't necessarily believe that at its face i think that 
if there's someone who's really a psychic, they should be able to be a psychic for anyone, whether or not they're a believer or not. That's what makes them a psychic. And I think if a house is haunted, it should affect people regardless of what they're, you know, whether they're into ghosts or not. But I do believe that people, if you go into a house, not just open to the possibility of ghosts, but actually looking for something like this. I mean, keep in mind, they had, there had been gruesome, terrible murders committed in this house, not but like a one year before the Lutzes moved in. So he had to have heard about this. And you know, he had heard about it because they told him, they told him that's why the price was marked down. So he was moving in knowing what that had occurred. And he was into the occult. He was into the supernatural. I think, who knows? But I do think that maybe he was he was looking for weirdness, looking for something to go awry, and maybe this house was haunted. I don't know. What do you think? Tweet at us. Write a review of House of Horrors and let us know that you hated this episode or loved it, you know, whatever. Well, that's all I can say about the Amityville Horror House. What do you think, folks? Do you buy their story? Do you buy all these psychics and their experiences? The woman who was taken over by the spirit of an Indian chief. All of the people who swore that this is the closest to hell I ever hope to be. Or do you believe the young Ronald DeFeo or the old Ronald DeFeo or the crazy Ronald DeFeo or the... Well, crazy, Ronald DeFeo. I don't know, folks. There are a lot of stories to tell here, and we've heard most of them. So now it's up to you. Regardless, if you enjoy this show, please remember to subscribe and rate us on iTunes. Uh, oh, Apple Podcasts, or whatever it's called. We're also available on Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, Luminary, TuneIn. Basically, wherever podcasts are found. If you can find podcasts there, you can find us there. Follow us on Twitter. We're at B leave that's capital B L E A V podcasts and of course feel free to follow me I'm at J O N B as in boy L E R N E R that's J O N no H B as in boy L E R N E R that's my handle on Twitter Instagram all that fun stuff all right I think that's all I've got so until next time folks I'll just stay stay happy stay healthy stay scared and your mother sucks cocks in hell. All right. Fuck me. Fuck me. Fuck me. That's great. <laughs> <laughs>Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.